Well, friends, you can turn in your Bibles now to Psalm 127. Psalm 127, not Luke's gospel, not to another study of the parables as much as we've been enjoying those, but to a one-week break in which I hope you'll indulge this nostalgic fella, an opportunity to look back and to look ahead. I have a hard time passing up opportunities like this. I've been that way since I was a little kid. The passage of time just gets to me. And about the only way I know to cope with it, to live with it, is to talk about it. And I want to do that with you guys here this afternoon. Uh, It was 10 years ago yesterday that we first gathered together for worship, that we first signed our covenant, a covenant that made 36 friends into a local church on the spot. A day which we celebrated communion together for the first time and a day in which there, through the very physical realities of those acts, we became under God of flesh and blood constituted local church. I'll never forget it. I remember, uh, I remember for example, how I began that first sermon. Most of the sermons I've ever preached, mercifully, I've forgotten long ago. I do remember that first introduction though. I remember that I used an illustration drawn from about the only pool of information or experience I had to work with at the time, which is to say from my life as a lifelong student, uh, my experience as a guy who was even then working to finish off a PhD that was tantalizingly unfinished at the time. I remember saying as I stood up there for that first sermon that it felt something like that day, felt something like what I remembered feeling on the first day I sat down to start writing my dissertation. The day I brought up that first blank word document, that glaring white emptiness, that blinking cursor up at the top of it, taunting me with every blink, laughing at me, daring me to put a terrible first sentence down on paper. I remember feeling something of that, of that anxious but but passionate energy to get after it and to see what would happen next. I remember using that illustration in part to tell us all and remind us all that it actually isn't what it seems like. That even though the church is as yet unbuilt on that day 10 years ago, we weren't exactly working with a blank page. We had a history behind us already of faithful Christians for 2,000 years doing local church work together. We had God's promises draped over us, promises that he would always be with us, that he would work by his word. And we had a gates of hell proof future out in front of us, built on the passage Matt read to us earlier in our service this afternoon. And now, friends, 10 years later, we can say that that confidence isn't hypothetical anymore. And though we've still got to depend on God's promises for every day we live, we're not just relying on the history of other people anymore when we say that God will build his church in spite of our weakness. We can point to our own experience and see it for ourselves. Our page isn't blank, not anymore. And I love what he's built. I love this church, I love you far more than I'll ever have words to describe. So, so today, partly what I wanna do in these few minutes that we have together is look back and celebrate, to reflect for a bit on what God has done and to, and to, to, to commemorate his goodness to us in our life together. But I, I don't just wanna look back this afternoon. I also want us to look ahead Today, I don't feel that blank page taunting me anymore, and I absolutely love what's on this page already. I can say without any doubt that it is better than I ever imagined it would be, both what he has built out of our church and the joy I've experienced as one of your pastors. 
What I'm more tempted to feel on this day is less the sort of anxious energy of what might be and what I hoped for, and more looking ahead toward what's to come, the, the urge to hold on to this precious gift, to, to fight back even against the fear that we might somehow lose it. I don't have to tell you it's been six months, almost to the day, since we last met for worship on a Sunday morning, since we gathered at the place that had become home to us at Aiken School, a home for nearly 10 years. Six months later, many of our friends are still not able to be with us here. They're watching at home right now on Zoom. Our connections to one another have been strained by this isolation. Our attempts to pursue one another like we've always done, like we've promised to do, like, like you've been so faithful to do all these years, they've been blocked by necessary distancing. And meanwhile, friends, at the time when we've, we've most needed to be able to get together and just talk, we've been living and breathing in a climate, in this place and time where God has put us that is stormy and contentious. We don't all agree about issues that we all, most of us care passionately about. And in the midst of all of that turmoil, we've been moving step by step, day by day, closer to a possible merger with another congregation and a shift of neighborhood from the one that's been our home. And though I'm full of excitement about that, actually more and more with every passing day, it also comes with unpredictable change. And I don't like change. I don't know about you. We don't know what we'll look like in September of 2021. We just know we won't look like we do right now. And that's hard to accept when you love what we look like right now. Maybe you're feeling this too. If you are, I hope that you'll be as encouraged by the perspective of Psalm 127 as I have been this week and in the weeks leading up to today. Normally in our sermons here at Trinity, we try to take the next passage up in a series through a book of the Bible and to go deep into it to try to see what all it contains for us. I'm not going to do that today. We've done that on this psalm, and you can find a, a sermon on Psalm 127 on our website if you want the deeper dive into the details. Instead, what I want to do today is put on Psalm 127 like a, like a pair of spectacles, much like these right here, and to look through the perspective of Psalm 127 at what we've been through and where we're headed. I want to use this, one of my favorite psalms, to help us see today. And I want to begin by reading the first two verses of this psalm. I'm going to ask you now to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read from Psalm 127. This is the word of the Lord. A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. One of my favorite Old Testament scholars in a study of this psalm points out that the first verse captures two basic human anxieties that all of us can relate to. It does so using wonderful examples, metaphors that speak to something broader and bigger than themselves. In the challenge of building a house and the warning that unless the Lord builds it, it's all in vain, this psalm captures our anxiety 
of creation. What you might call our desire to build something of significance. In the next image, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. The psalmist pictures our drive to conserve. Creation, the first image of building a house, and conservation in the image of watching over a city to try to protect it. Think of these two images as the images for building what we long for and protecting what we love. Pictured here by building a house, maybe a physical house, but more likely a lineage, a legacy. And watching over a city, a, a, a person who looks out for dangers surrounding the city, waiting on them to come so that the alarm can be sounded, so that, the, so that the troops can be mustered, so that the threat can be repulsed. And in, this, in these two images, in this psalm, the psalmist tells us that our anxiety, as natural as it is, is useless and it's unnecessary. It's useless because everything depends on the Lord. No matter what you may try to do to add to him, no matter how hard you may work and how much stress you may expend, it's all for nothing unless he builds what you want to see. And it's unnecessary because everything depends on the Lord and he gives to his beloved sleep. You don't have to pry good things from his hands. You don't have to, you don't have to convince him to be for you. He is and for his beloved, he works while they rest. So I want to let these two verses and these two images guide us this afternoon as we celebrate what God has built and as we trust God with what we love. I want to guide you to celebrate what God has already built among us and then encourage you to trust him to protect what we love in a time of change and uncertainty. First, let's celebrate what God has built. When we first began 10 years ago, uh, we were really, really committed to make sure that whatever became of our church, it'd be clear to everybody that was watching it that God was behind it all. Not our power, not our ingenuity, not our marketplace savvy. See, God gets glory in the life of a local church when anything that comes of it is only possible by his power at work among us. That means when we started out, we didn't want any goals that we had the power to fulfill. We didn't want to give ourselves like some long-range goals that maybe we'd get to, but some short-range goals that you know, were kind of low-hanging fruit that we knew we had steps we could take to get to to kind of build momentum. None of that. We don't want any goals that are in our reach. We put it, wanted to put our money where our mouth is, so to speak, by uh, avoiding any strategy to attract people or build our community that would work whether God is with us or not. I guess another way to put that is that we built our strategy on the conviction that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. There's just no point if he's not working. Fortunately for us, the Bible is just really clear about what God uses to build his church, about what kind of churches put his glory on display. It's not a mystery. He, he tells us and calls us to trust him by doing the things he tells us to do. And he gets glory in local churches, when the church is built by the power of his word and by relationships between people that are shaped by his word. That's how he gets glory in a church. When the church is built up by the power of his word at work among them and in relationships that are built on his word. I could give you a lot of examples of where the Bible teaches us this, but I just want to give you one. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, a, a, a sermon series that, that, that we had uh, probably three years ago, we spent a lot of time here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 talking about our ministry philosophy as a church based on these verses. Listen to what Paul says about his ministry. This is what shaped ours. Paul writes, We have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. You hear what he's saying? In other words, we're not going to try to get cute. We're not going to try to get too creative in what we do to build our church. We're not going to try to put some spin on this or pull some sort of bait and switch or, or tone down the parts of God's word that might be hard for people to swallow. We're not going to get into the business of disgraceful or underhanded ways. Instead, what we're going to do is we're just going to make the truth as plain as we can to take ourselves out of the way and to let God speak through what he's spoken. As Paul puts it, through an open statement of the truth. So why? What makes this the best way to ensure that what God is the one doing the building? Paul answers that in verses five and six. He writes, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sakes. In other words, we got nothing, nothing to offer you except Jesus. We're just the one who makes the match. For God, Paul writes, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul is right here. He's intentionally drawing a, a comparison between what happens when the word is preached and what happened on the first day of creation. That God spoke and light came into being. His word has a creative power. And now, just like that, when his word of the hope for the gospel, when the word about Jesus and his life and death and resurrection goes out, it doesn't just go out as information. It's living and active. It creates new life where there was none, just like his words of creation at the beginning of time. God uses the gospel to shine into our hearts and show us his glory. It's his power tool. And if you want to double down on the Lord as the only one who can build his house, then you double down on his word at the center of everything that you're doing. You clear away whatever else you might try to do to help it along, and then you step back and you watch to see what he does with it. Friends, I'll admit, this, keeping this kind of word-centered approach to ministry is a lot easier said than done before we started our church. I already thought all of this because I had had good influences and read good books, and it didn't take many days on the job to realize what a strong temptation there was to kind of try to boost it along, try to help it out, try to spruce up what seemed to need some extra shine or knock off rough edges that might not go down so well with other people. How quickly... We're tempted to add to his word, in other words. I felt that. We so prefer to have things that we can measure, metrics that we can see and reach by careful strategy and sweat and follow through. And that's why, that's one reason why I'm just so grateful that God has kept us dependent on him whether we've wanted it or not. I mean, consider the fact that, that the, the preaching that all of us elders have spent the last 10 years doing 
uh, well, it's, it's basically amounted to our first sermons like, like ever. <laughs> our training has all been on the job, trial and error, and you guys have been the test subjects, whether you liked it or not. I, for one, let me just talk about me for now was nobody's profile of a successful church planter 10 years ago. I was more at home on the receiving end of some sort of academic lecture than on the giving end of an accessible and helpful and practical sermon. Those of you who are here those early days know painfully from experience what I'm talking about. And if these sermons that we've preached were to shape any of us, if they were to draw in anyone, if they were to help people in a deep and meaningful way, well, it would have to be because the word doesn't actually need our help. God has kept us aware of that, maybe painfully aware of that. Or let me give you another example of how without even our attempt at this, he has kept us dependent on him and the power of his word rather than what we might do to add to it or spruce it up. Earlier today, uh, we were talking in our family after some family worship this morning about that story uh, where Elijah is going toe-to-toe with the prophets of Baal and they're gonna have a, a pray-off essentially to see whose God is the real God. And they pile up the wood and they put the sacrifice on it and the, the prophets of Baal do all of their rituals and they're tearing their clothes and pulling out their hair and doing everything, trying to get this God, their God to, to burn up the sacrifice. And he doesn't do it because he's not really there anyway. And then Elijah comes up to his offering and he douses it with water. Four rounds of this, I think it was, of these gallons of water he pours all over it, soaking the sacrifice so that he can just step back, ask the Lord to show everybody who he really is and watch the fire come down and consume it. I think about the Aiken School Auditorium as kind of like a soaking wet pile of wood for this sacrifice that we made to him of ourselves and our words and asking him to, to, to bless it. And I love that auditorium. I love a lot about it. But let's be honest, like just aesthetically, as a setting for the word of the Lord, the transcendent one over all creation, the source of every trace of beauty that has ever been. Well, I just wish we had a photographic record of the various theater sets that we preached this word from this God uh, in front of, or should I say, surrounded by. The Jungle Book sticks out, for example. I remember those vines, they stayed up about six months after the play was finished hanging just down over my head where I stood to preach. I remember that time they did Beauty and the Beast and the fountain showed up on the stage on precisely the day we were having parent-child dedication. <laughs> Maybe my personal favorite was the year they were celebrating the Chinese New Year. This got a mention yesterday in the reminiscences we were doing together. It was the year of the dragon and the whole auditorium was decked out for months, including a sign right over my head for at least four, five, six months, enter the dragon. And I preached up under that sign, sermon after sermon, while you guys fought for attention. The Bible's got plenty of dragons in it, but that's not a theme you really want to identify with. Do you remember the time when the roof was leaking and the, past, the plaster was falling in and there was this whole area right in the middle, like to, I guess stage left, like over here, right in the middle of like the prime seats. We had to rope it off with tape and there was... And there was a bucket there to catch the water and a big ladder up there because they were working day by day to try to plaster that thing back together. Or maybe the best of all were those dreaded weeks in the gym without AC. Do you remember how many different ways we configured that room trying with great futility to minimize the distraction? I mean, on one side of the room, you had this huge American flag up on the wall. 
And to have stood in front of that would look like a campaign poster. So we knew we're not doing that. We're not going to do it on that wall. So we set up on the other wall. But on that wall, above my head as I preached many a sermon, was a giant mural of a bald eagle dunking a basketball. (laughs) So then we moved it the other way. At this point, I'm right under the goal. I'm just imagining kids, imagining the basketball falling through, a successful shot, just the clonk right here on my head. That wasn't what they were thinking about at all because on, on, the, on that day, there was a bird that got trapped in the gym. You guys remember that? I'm hearing some, some positive affirmation despite the masking. I'm actually hearing some good feedback now. There was a bird that was, that was trapped in there. And so we had to open the door that was over here to my right in the hopes that he would fly out. Someone actually got some bird seed and sprinkled it down on the floor by the door, hoping to, to lure him there and then he would see freedom and fly out. And, and he did. Near the end of the sermon, after every eye in the place was just on that bird. I could tell when he got out the door because you were all like, whoa, yeah. You kept it to yourselves, sort of, but not from your faces. I guess what I'm trying to say is that in a way, Our setting for these sermons these first 10 years has even pictured for us what really matters most. Paul says a few verses later in 2 Corinthians 4 that we have this treasure, this creative, living, and active, world-shaping power. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That seems to fit our setting pretty well, doesn't it? God's word brings new worlds into being. His word brings the dead back to life. His word changes hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, or so he claims. So let's see. If it's true, he can work through inexperienced sermons delivered surrounded by jungle book vines and palm trees. If it's true, transcendent architecture, creative rhetoric, they don't actually make him one bit more effective than he already is on his own. So let's see. And friends, we have, haven't we? Week in, week out, we've come back together as he commanded us to do to stir one another up to love and good deeds. And the thing we've had has been his word preached from the front and then ricocheting all amongst you in your relationships with one another. And look what he's built. Time doesn't allow us to go through even a few choice examples of his power we've seen transforming us, our relationships and our orientation to the world. But we've seen it, haven't we? Let's celebrate together what the Lord has already built. Our work has been hard, but certainly not in vain because the Lord is building this house. He is. So now, let's trust God with what we love. You may remember I said at the beginning there are two anxieties in this verse, two aspects of the perspective that this psalm gives us. We gotta trust him to build what matters most to us or all our work is in vain. If it's on us, it's not happening. Praise God, our page isn't blank anymore and he's done a beautiful work here. All glory be to him for that. But, but our story's not over yet, is it? 
In fact, we're now facing a period of instability and change unlike anything we've faced before. And now more than ever, we need to know that unless God watches over the city, unless he protects and conserves this church that is so precious to us, then we watch over it all in vain. On the rare occasion that anyone asks me for church planting advice based on our experience, I always encourage them not to listen to the folks who are telling them to come up with five-year goals and master plans because those things can teach you not just to trust in your own power but to love a church you haven't got yet. I try to tell them, love the church God's already given you, not the one that he hasn't. But I'll be honest, it's come really easy for me to love the church we've had. That's partly because you guys have been so easy to love and partly because our history so far has been so precious, so full of his grace. But it's also been easy for me because I don't love change in general. I tend to, already, I tend to like what I already have a lot more than what I don't. And I, I look back on these first years with a heart overflowing with love. I loved our small and scrappy upstart phase. I loved our easy university access and the kind of wonderful students and trainees that it always seemed to bring our way. I loved Aiken School and that sweet auditorium despite all the junk, all the wonderful natural light that we had there. And, and even watching you guys clear away and carefully restore that carousel of junk was a joy to, to see as you served in his name. I guess I'm saying that I'll look back on the memories of these years as some of the most precious in my life. If the Lord gives me another 50 years, I'll look back on these 10 as among the most precious. I know that. That's not a question. And in the last six months, so much has changed, hasn't it? I, for one, can feel myself just wanting to cling, wanting to hold on to what we have, to preserve it, to protect it. Do you feel that? The other night I was awake into the wee hours, unable to sleep. That doesn't happen to me very often, but it hit me the other night for whatever reason. I found myself laying there trying to go to sleep and I was just cycling through everything that's going on, all the threats I see to this city that I love. I was, I was cycling through things that need to be communicated about the, the possible merger with Edgefield and, 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 and the conversations that need to be had with different stakeholders and hoping everything could be just as clear as possible. I, I was thinking about all these ongoing COVID restrictions and how much I hate them, how much I'm just ready for this to be over. I just want to bear hug every one of you. I was thinking about that and, and, and the challenge of staying connected to one another despite all of it. I was thinking about the, the important conversations happening around the country over racial justice and other issues that affect the public square and, 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 and the challenge of knowing what is our God-given responsibility as a local church? What's our lane? What do we say and in what ways and to whom? I was thinking about friends struggling in need of more help than I can give them and, and a host of other matters. Basically, I was just laying there with this list of stressors like a playlist on repeat. The reality is we are facing a season of changes that we can't predict and challenges that we can't overcome in our own strength. And if sleep, literal sleep, like the kind I was deprived of, or metaphorical sleep, like the rest of soul, that the Bible promises us. If our sleep depends on our problem-solving skills, then we're not gonna get any. What a gift to have this psalm standing in front of me that night and, 
and so often, like a big flashing red LED warning sign that humbles me, that puts me in my place, and then reminds me how good it is that God sits on the throne instead of me. Verse two, it's in vain, Matt, that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Your work might not be in vain, but anxious toil, as if success or failure is hanging in the balance based on how you perform, that's vanity. Not just pride, but foolishness. It does no good at all. It makes no difference, Matt. You can't row against time's ever-rolling stream. No matter how hard you fight it, she bears all her sons away every time. Perfect record. Change is coming. You can't micromanage a future free of pain or loss. This world is still fallen. We will lose. It will hurt. But the news is ultimately better than just wisdom that puts me in my place. It's gospel that gives me hope. He gives to his beloved, even me, sleep. I love to pair this promise with another one from a psalm, a few psalms earlier, Psalm 121. This is the one my wife normally sends me when I'm weighed down by responsibilities that seem too heavy to bear. There the psalmist writes, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. If I knew that were true, I'd sleep a lot better, wouldn't you? Don't you think you'd be able to rest if you knew he wouldn't let your foot be moved? How do we know? Because the psalm continues, he who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Friends, there's no question that we're facing times that will change us. And as I said earlier, I don't know what we'll look like a year from now. If facing those changes and coming through them with something that's as beautiful as what we enjoy right now depends on us, it's all for nothing. If our ability to enjoy whatever these next, this next year brings is dependent on our ability to micromanage what comes for us and to control outcomes we can live with, we're gonna live in stress and fear and still end up with chasing the wind. But the God who built this house, he is still working. And the word that he promised to bless and has so evidently blessed among us is still in our grasp, in our hearts, in our minds, in our mouths. He's not finished with us yet. And whatever comes in this next year, we face it with that same word that's been our only source of good. And we face it with one another as a context in which to hear, to share, to receive that word. And if we know that he isn't sleeping, we can trust him. And we can give ourselves to loving whatever he brings to our church this year. I want to pray now that he will give us faith for what's ahead based on the joy we have in what's been 
Father, you alone are God. There is no one else like you. Help us to trust you to sit on your throne rather than try to sit there ourselves. We thank you for the wonderful work you have done that's far beyond what we could have ever even known to ask you for. And we ask you to stay at work amongst us now to give us rest in knowing that you won't. You won't rest until all your children are home and until your church has triumphed once and for all over the gates of hell and all that stands against her. We commit this battle to you and ourselves, to your service, and pray that you would use us. In Jesus' name, amen.